This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. The magnificent story of God's redemptive work through Christ comes alive in a fresh way with the ESV Audio Bible, now available with new voices, including Conrad and Bayway, Jackie Hill Perry, and Ray Ortland. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or visit esv.org to learn more about these and other new audio features. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast. In spring 2022, TGC released a five-part video debate series featuring prominent Christian thinkers discussing some of the most divisive issues facing the church today. On today's episode, we're featuring the first debate where Bob Thune and Andrew Wilson discuss the topic of gun control. Pastor Jim Davis from Orlando Grace Church moderates this debate. First, you'll hear from Bob Thune, followed by Andrew Wilson. Let's listen in. On February 24th, 2022, Russian troops launched a massive military invasion of Ukraine. In response, Ukrainian President Zelensky posted this on Twitter. We will give weapons to anyone who wants to defend the country. The right to bear arms is no abstract right, and the debate over it is no ethereal debate. If ever we needed a picture of how important the right to bear arms is, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given us yet another one. What should Christians think? about gun control and the right to bear arms? That's the question before us in this good faith debate. And the answer is simple. Because Jesus Christ commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Christians have a moral duty to protect every person's right of existence and of self-defense, which includes the right to bear arms. I will demonstrate this assertion in three phases. First, I will show biblically that human beings have a basic right of self-defense, or to say it another way, a right to preserve their own existence. Second, I will show that Christians have a moral duty to love our neighbors by protecting this right. And third, I will show that the right to self-defense in the modern world includes the right to bear arms. And thus, to defeat my argument, an opponent would have to show either that human beings do not have a basic right to preserve their existence, that Christians do not have a moral duty to love our neighbors by protecting that right, or that that right does not include the right to bear arms. To state my case another way, you might say this, the right to bear arms derives from the right of self-defense, which exists by virtue of creation. Organisms that exist have the right to preserve their own existence. And because loving our neighbors includes protecting their right to existence, We have a moral obligation to protect the right of self-defense in society, and that includes the right to bear arms. So let's start with a very simple fact. Organisms that exist have a right to preserve their existence. The preservation of life 
is a basic commitment of biblical ethics. And as organisms have a right to exist, so too they have a fundamental right to self-defense. The most important biblical text on this matter is Exodus 22, verse 2, which reads, If a thief is found breaking in and is beaten to death, no blood guilt is incurred. The pressing question is, why would an Israelite not be guilty before the Lord for killing a man during a robbery? Quite simply, because it's a clear case of self-defense. In the Talmud, the rabbis offer this commentary on the text. It's as though the thief was considered dead from the start. Here the Torah teaches, if someone comes to kill you, kill him first. The Bible and the Jewish common law tradition assume the basic right of human beings to self-defense. Greek and Roman law also recognize this basic right. The Roman orator Cicero in a speech before the court during a self-defense trial asked, what is the meaning of our swords? Surely we would never be permitted to have them if we might never use them. This therefore is a law, O judges, not written, but born with us. If our life be in danger, every means of securing our safety is honorable. For laws are silent when arms are raised. The law very wisely and silently gives a man a right to defend himself. The great Thomas Aquinas also understood the right of self-defense to be a given. In the Summa, he writes, Inasmuch as every substance seeks the preservation of its own being, whatever is a means of preserving human life and of warding off its obstacles belongs to the natural law. In the Reformation tradition, Francis Turretin states the matter quite plainly. To repel by force and to defend oneself belongs to natural and perpetual right, even unto the slaying of the aggressor. So biblically, logically, and theologically, human beings have a basic right to exist and therefore a basic right to self-defense. Furthermore, Christians have a moral duty to love our neighbors by protecting and preserving this right for them. This is most clearly seen in the way the Protestant catechisms understand the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? And it answers this way. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others, including just defense against violence. The catechism goes on to state the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. According to the catechism, the law of God enjoins upon Christians a moral duty to defend our neighbors against unjust violence and to preserve their lives by all means possible. This was Calvin's understanding of the commandments as well. Uh, he writes, each man ought to concern himself with the safety of all. We are accordingly commanded. If we find anything of use to us in saving our neighbors' lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for their peace, to see to it. If anything harmful, to ward it off. God's law commands us to love our neighbors by protecting their existence and defending them against unjust harm. So thus far, I've established that biblically, logically, and theologically, human beings have a basic right to existence and to self-defense, and that Christians have a moral duty to love our neighbors by protecting that right. It remains then to show that the right of self-defense includes the right to bear arms. 
If it is granted that human beings have a right to defend themselves and a duty to defend others, the only matter to be settled is, what are we to defend against? And the answer is, against violence to their person. On the playground, it may be the violence of a bully's fists. In Cicero's day, it may have been the violence of a Roman sword. And in our day, it includes the violence of modern weapons. We live in a world where guns exist. We may wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And in a world where guns exist, the threat of gun violence will also exist. If a bully attacks me with his fists, I can fight back and call for help. If a stranger picks my pocket, I can cancel my credit cards and replace my lost goods. But if an attacker threatens me with a firearm, my life itself is in immediate and grave danger. And therefore, the right and responsibility to defend life in the modern world includes the right to bear arms for the simple fact that one of the gravest threats to life in the modern world is the threat of gun violence. And this threat exists not only for individuals, but for churches and schools, as we've seen repeatedly in recent decades. Advocates of strict gun control laws would deny to human beings a defense proportional to the threat against them. They work to craft a world in which we face the threat of gun violence, but lack a proportional means of defense for ourselves and for others. And that violates both the right to self-defense that is ours by creation and the duty of neighbor love that is ours by redemption. Because Jesus Christ commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Christians have a moral duty to protect every person's right of existence and of self-defense, which includes the right to bear arms. In closing, let me speak briefly to what I think is the strongest argument for gun control in the modern world, and that is this, that we are better off to entrust the defense of ourselves and others to the government and to its agents. And that works well until the government and its agents become the threat. And history has no shortage of such cases. It's the reason the right to bear arms was enshrined in the English Bill of Rights of 1689 and in the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. During the debates around the ratification of the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists frequently warned that a powerful federal government could simply disarm the people and impose military rule. And so Joseph Story, an early Supreme Court justice, argued that the security of a free state included security against the tyranny of an overreaching government. Because governments and not merely individuals are prone to violence and injustice, the most biblical approach to guns and gun ownership is to enshrine the right to bear arms broadly across a society. Yes, that does mean that guns will be accessible to criminals. But it's also the only way to ensure that every individual maintains the right to defend themselves and others against violence, whether that violence comes from an individual or from a government. The scriptures promise us that one day, the lion will lie down with the lamb. That one day, swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. That one day, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But until that day, the scriptures assure us that wicked men will continue to eat the bread of wickedness and to drink the wine of violence. Therefore, Christians should worship our Savior for laying down his life 
and becoming a sacrifice for us. But we may not sacrifice the lives of those around us by our refusal to defend and protect them. In this fallen world, Christians have a moral duty to protect every person's right of existence and of self-defense. And that necessitates the right to bear arms. Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, Thank you for having me. There is a a long and distinguished tradition of British people crossing the Atlantic and telling the Americans that they should lay down their guns. Um, And we're having this conversation just a few hundred yards away from the Capitol building and the presidential mansion that my ancestors burnt down two centuries ago. So it's probably worth clarifying that my paper today, this presentation is not motivated by a desire to get any of you to surrender your empire, become loyal subjects of Her Majesty and give us back our tea. Although I would not be untoward that kind of thing. But if anything, it's actually motivated by a more serious desire, which overlaps, I think, very closely with Bob's, which is a desire to save American lives, particularly those who are most vulnerable in society, rather than to take them. Now, you all know the statistics I expect. If you don't, a paragraph, if you'll bear with me. America is a striking outlier amongst rich countries when it comes to gun deaths. And indeed, homicide rates in general are significantly higher here than elsewhere in the, in the rich world. Over 100 people are shot and killed every day in this country. 25 times as many people are murdered with firearms than in other rich countries proportionately. And 28 times as many women are murdered with firearms in this country. Guns appear to substantially increase the total number of homicides. Last year, there were as many murders in Philadelphia as there were in England, although England had 30 times the population that Philadelphia does. And those deaths are disproportionately clustered amongst poor communities, African-Americans, black Americans are 10 times more likely to be shot dead than white Americans. One million American women have been shot at by a domestic partner. Firearms are the leading cause of death for American children and so on. Now, I doubt there's anybody here who isn't, I hope there's nobody here who isn't seriously troubled by those statistics uh, and doesn't see them as a significant problem. The, The question, of course, is not, is that bad? The question is whether anything can or should be done about that, and if so, what it is. Australia faced that question in 1996. After 35 people were killed in a mass shooting in Tasmania, the government took robust action banning all semi-automatic and automatic weapons. They imposed longer and stricter waiting periods and more rigorous licensing and storage restrictions. And they required a genuine reason to own a gun, which included hunting and target shooting, but did not include self-defense. Since then, the government has bought back one million semi-automatic weapons, halving the total number of gun-owning households in the country. The number of gun homicides has dramatically reduced in that time, and the overall homicide rate has halved. Now, I mentioned the Australian example because I'm a sort of squishy British guy uh, who probably doesn't have the moral authority to speak on these things to this audience. But the Australian example also because Australia seems to me to share a lot of cultural traits with the USA, which European countries like mine do not. Australia, like America, has a low population density, dangerous animals, a legacy of hunting, a wild west, a popular culture of rugged masculinity. So a lot of cultural things which it has in common with the States, which might not be true in Britain. But it also has a tragic recent history of mass shootings. And interestingly, it shares with America a high popular support for tightening firearm restrictions. 
course, there are additional political and legal obstacles to reform in the US, which do not exist in Australia, but that won't trouble most people in this audience because uh, pro-life Christians in this country have a track record of advocacy for what they believe is right in the face of congressional intransigence or whatever. Now, my case today basically involves four claims, and I've already made the first two. I'm going to save the fourth one till the very end for fear of losing the audience. Um, I hope I'm reading it correctly on that front. But the first two claims I've made are these. One, gun violence is a massive and tragic problem which afflicts America far more than comparable nations and disadvantaged Americans significantly worse than anybody else. And that is a grievous injustice. That's the first claim. There's a problem. The second claim is that international examples suggest that this injustice could be reduced if tighter gun restrictions were applied. And domestic examples do as well, because regression analysis comparing U.S. states has shown that greater restrictions are strongly correlated with lower gun deaths. Now, there's a lot of debate, unsurprisingly, about which drives which, but the correlation is itself interesting, I think. The third claim I want to make is that the benefits of tighter gun control, both for potential victims and for the communities in which they live and die, outweigh the limitations on personal freedom that they involve. As I said, I'll save the fourth one for later. Let's assume for a moment that no one here is proposing an absolute ban on all potentially deadly weapons for all citizens. So I don't propose a ban on carving knives. I don't propose a ban on baseball bats or moving vehicles, even though all three of them can be used to kill people and have been. I don't even propose a ban on hunting rifles or target ranges, both of which are actually legal in the UK and both of which I have used myself for what that may be worth. But on the other hand, at the same time, I'm going to assume that nobody here believes that there should be no limits on the potentially potentially deadly weapons that a citizen can own. I would be amazed if anybody watching this thought that a private citizen should be allowed to own nuclear devices or cluster bombs or howitzers or VX gas on the grounds that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. In other words, you have both extremes, and I don't think anyone's really at either of those positions. There may be some, but that's certainly not where I am. I'm pretty sure it's not where Bob is either. In other words, I suspect that most of us already believe that citizens have the right to bear some arms and that the right to bear other arms should be infringed no matter what the Second Amendment says, and so on. And put differently, there's a spectrum with carving knives at one end and weapons of mass destruction at the other end. At the light end, we might issue a warning on the packaging, or refuse to sell them to children, or restrict their carriage in public spaces, including the space in which I'm speaking now, in which guns are not allowed. At the heavy end, we would refuse anyone found making or owning one of those heavier items of domestic terrorism. And the rights in each case are not absolute. They're balanced with the right of other people to cut up their steak. Uh, In other words, that's why you're allowed to own a carving knife. They all play baseball. But they're also balanced with the rights not to be blown to smithereens while walking home from the office. We think the benefits of using carving knives are greater than the risk of being stabbed by them. Meanwhile, we we think that the personal freedom to own a Molotov cocktail is dramatically outweighed by the chance of killing or maiming an innocent person. Our assessment of where something sits on that spectrum, I think, is a function of lethality, how many, peop- how, how many people it could kill, teleology, what it's designed for, and utility, what it's typically used for. I think that would be a way of grading the spectrum. Maybe we could talk about that in a moment. So let me ask this. On that spectrum, where would we place assault weapons? Machine guns, AR-15s, the sorts of weapons that Australia banned 25 years ago successfully. And I put it to you that when it comes to lethality, 
teleology and utility, how likely it is to kill, what it's designed for, what it's used for. All of those weapons, the, the sort of the weapons that are assault weapons, AR-15s or whatever, are very much at the heavier end of the spectrum. They are designed to injure and kill people. They're used to injure and kill people with appalling frequency. And in that sense, they're more like a Molotov cocktail than a baseball bat or a carving knife. So if implementing, say, Australian-style restrictions, which are not as tight as British ones, but if implementing the Australian-style restrictions would halve the number of innocent people being killed by them, or even close to it, then that benefit should take precedence over the personal freedom to own them. And nothing I've said so far is uniquely Christian, you will have noticed. This is a, a common good argument that could be used in the public square, regardless of whether the audience is evangelical or even Christian, because many who make the laws are not. But my fourth claim is more radical. The fourth claim is that Christians should oppose the use of deadly weapons on principle because we're committed to the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the practice of nonviolence. Followers of Jesus should oppose the use of AR-15s or machine guns in self-defense for the same reason that we should oppose landmines, drone strikes, capital punishment, abortion, you name it. Christians should never kill people. That's a tricky case to make in 60 seconds, but here goes. Jesus never used violence against people, whether to defend himself or to defend the innocent. He teaches his followers to live the same way, not resisting evil and turning the other cheek, Matthew 5, Luke 6. Every time a disciple tries or threatens to use violence in the Gospels, even in defense of the innocent, Christ rebukes them. Luke 9, Luke 22, John 19. The apostles regularly present Jesus' suffering as an example for believers to follow. Romans 12, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 2. Disciples are commended for joyfully accepting the plunder of their property. Hebrews 10. Our struggle is not with worldly enemies or worldly weapons. Ephesians 6. Christians conquer not by killing, but by dying by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives even unto death, Revelation 12. And every church father before Constantine who addressed the subject, Oregon, Tertullian, Cyprian, Lactantius, Athenagoras, agreed that killing image bearers of God is always morally wrong. Now, I'm not naive. I know my audience will almost entirely disagree with me on this, and that's fine. But be that as it may, there is a strong common good case for tighter gun controls in America, perhaps along Australian lines, which just war advocates could happily support. The stakes are high. During this debate we're having, 10 Americans will be shot and killed during this brief, I apologize, shot during this brief debate. They won't all be killed. In Britain, we average one gun death per week. And the reason why I submit to you is encapsulated by Hilaire Balloc uh, at the end of the 19th century, and albeit writing in a very different context. He said, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. Thank you. All right, well, thank you both for both of your arguments. I am going to start with you, Bob, and I'm going to kind of start off where Andrew finished. So my question is, how then do you apply Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Yeah, excellent question. And I think that is the question for anyone who wants to make a case for uh, the right to bear arms. And the, the way the mainstream theological tradition has answered that question is just to say that, uh, that Jesus' ethic there is one that Christians are free to apply personally, but obviously we don't expect countries, nations, to apply that ethic in the same way, right? Uh, or to say it the way uh, Frederick Dale Bruner says it, uh, Jesus isn't saying I should let someone slap my neighbor's cheek also. Uh, 
Uh, it's an ethic I'm free to apply personally, but it does not apply to the protection and defense of others. And so, uh, though Andrew's certainly correct that the earliest history of the church, the first 300 years, uh, almost across the board, there was a understanding that Christians should not serve in the military, shouldn't, shouldn't use violence in any way. Uh, and so there's maybe some fun conversation we could have about what changed. You know, people want to blame that on Constantine and all of that. But it is interesting to me that the mainstream theological tradition since Augustine would say there's there's freedom here for Christians to, uh, that, that Jesus is not intending to uh, undo the Old Testament law related especially to the protection and defense of others. That's helpful. All right, Andrew, you, you did mention you've shot a gun before in, in <laughs> yeah. your argument. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've been hunting, in what context, I'm curious. No, I wasn't, I was, so I was, in the, I was in the cadets at school, and so we had to fire SA-80s, uh, it was like a target ranges, that kind of thing. I, I think I used, when I used a hunting rifle, it, wasn't, it was the firing of the gun, rather than I haven't actually shot an animal, but I used it, um, I think probably clay pigeon shooting or something like that. I yeah. can't remember, I remember where I was, I don't actually remember what, I think it was one of those things where they fire things through the air and stuff, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I've kind of mentioned it because I don't think, it's because I don't know that the, the principle of saying n- nothing, no weapon that could be used to kill somebody can ever be owned by anybody, right. which is at a more extreme level is the carving knife baseball bat argument. But I just thought it was worth throwing out because otherwise people think, ah, he's an English guy. What does he know? So that's why I thought I'd throw it out. So Andrew, I, I do really appreciate the way that you make the argument in terms of unacceptable extre- extremes. That's what you're, you're, you're getting at there. Uh, of what can be used as a weapon and where we would draw those lines. So let's go to your fourth point, which you call your most radical, but it, it had the most Bible. So I think that's a good place to start. Do you think that there is a time for self-defense? And if you do, how do you align that with Jesus's command to turn the other cheek? I mean, I, th- I think it, de- it depends what you mean by defense, right? So I think obviously the word, de- <laughs> the word defense is very slippery because it goes from, I'm, if, I don't, if I'm not prepared to kill somebody, I'm not going to defend them. And I don't think that's true at all. I think there are lots of ways of defending your neighbor, defending your neighbor's reputation, honor, literally standing in front of the bullet, standing in front of the tank, whatever it may be. And the Christian tradition is obviously full of nonviolent ways of defending people. So to me, I don't think the debate's really about defense. Mm -hmm. That that isn't the, the, the terminology I would use, because I think the idea of defending your neighbor is a noble thing. And in some circumstances, the idea of defending myself, depending on what it is, I can defend myself against charges of false accusation. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think Jesus is saying don't in that setting. I think the issue of do not resist the one who is evil is I think you have to do a lot of wiggling to try and get out of it. If by that you mean somebody's coming to me and I think that they are going to attack either me or even someone close to me and so I can kill them, I think that's a, a, a very difficult thing to square with don't resist the one who is evil. But I think defending doesn't only have to take violent form. It doesn't have to involve carrying a gun or even any kind of weapon. So that's why I would sort of want to disentangle defense as a word. I think it's, to be honest, I think it's a euphemism mostly for the right to own a gun that might kill someone. I don't, I don't think that's the same as defending something. I think there are lots of ways of defending yourself without violence. And many in the, and you'd say we're just a few hundred yards from the Martin Luther King Memorial. You can defend people as, and he did without using violence. So, to me, those two, two things are quite distinct. So that's probably that's how I start answering that. All right, Bob, let's go back to you. One of your main arguments uh, that you made is that we need to protect ourselves from governmental oppression. And you sp- specifically mentioned what's going on in the Ukraine right now and where President Zelensky is trying to get weapons of pretty much any kind into the hands of his people so they can defend themselves. And that would include fully automatic weapons, RPGs, Molotov cocktails, as we have seen in the news. 
And I think it's fair to say there's just there's probably not much of a limit in what he would want sure. in the hands of his people. So uh, if we were to follow your argument, and, and Andrew kind of alluded to this, I, w- I want you to be able to make it clear and speak for yourself. If you were to follow your argument to its logical conclusion, it would seem like that you would be for Americans having access to any kind of... Pocket nuclear weapons. Well, at least bombs, <laughs> grenade launchers, <laughs> tanks. I mean, so that it does open you up to that, to be prepared for either war or some sort of governmental overreaction. So, well, so I, I, may, I use that analogy for two reasons. One, because I'm curious from Andrew's perspective, if, you know, the, the, the weakness I see in that argument that he made is the more Christian the Ukraine was the less anyone would be willing to take up a weapon. And so I'm wondering if, there, if, if he would make an exception for national defense. And I think in, in our context in America, obviously, we've allowed the Supreme Court to sort of interpret that. And the way they've interpreted it in, in Supreme Court juris- jurisprudence is to say that the Second Amendment protects the right of a civilian to own a weapon that a civilian, you know, that would have been the kind of a, a weapon that a, a militiaman would have, would have owned. So they've allowed for um, the growth of technology, but not for the kinds of weapons that we would have always said, a tank or a cannon or whatever, those kinds of things that are more of a clear, uh, they're meant for a certain purpose and, and meant to be used by the nation in the defense of a nation. Well, he opened up a question to you as, mm. as it pertains to national defense. How would you answer yeah, that no, question? So I'm, a, I'm a pacifist. Or I mean, that might not be the best, best term, you know, committed to nonviolence. So yeah, I, don't, I would apply it through national defense as well. But I, th- I think the reason why so much of my uh, presentation is, was not actually focused on that argument is partly because I know I'm not going to win that one in this audience, but also partly because I think there is a common good argument to be made nonetheless, along the same lines, actually. I, I think so. I'm interested by that qualification to say that the citizen could own a, you know, a, a, a gun but not a grenade launcher. And, so on. and it, just to tease out the, the principles behind that, that effectively you would still make a, a distinction, you differentiate, I guess, between yeah. what the state could do and what the individual could do. And the, the question is whether whether that's consistent, because effectively I think that's exactly what I'm saying as well. It's just that the line I'm drawing, rather than being nation states typically are the people who use these, there'd be plenty of places where assault weapons and even grenade launchers are owned by private citizens and militia. Certainly if you travel in large parts of Africa, you know, in particularly where, things, where the government isn't as strong, that would not be uncommon. So in that scenario, should Christians own those things too? And so I just want to know where does it in, in your scenario, where does it end? Um, I think in mine, it, it kind of doesn't start <laughs> in the sense that I think that's what Christians are, I think that's what Jesus is teaching. So I don't think the Old Testament arguments particularly, uh, because I think Jesus is, is saying, you have heard it was said, but I'm saying this. And in a sense, it'd be the same as, as what is said about lust or divorce or many other things that Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. But in a context where you do think some weapons can be used and some can't, I mean, so what, where is the line? Or is that just the line that it exists within the U.S.? And, and I will say, since I did, I allowed your question to be directed to him, I, would you mind answering that question? Where does it end? Yeah, I'll do the best I can. Um, it, what's interesting is we're really in the heart of political theology here, aren't we? Where we, we're, I was trying to make the broadest case from a natural law Bible sort of ethic, a theological case for the Bible permits us to defend other people's rights to existence. And I think the right to bear arms is a derivative of that imperative. Um, every, I think everyone would agree with the point that you made, which is that on a spectrum, we all agree that we, should, we, can't, we don't have a right to own a suitcase nuke or a, a drone, right? There are certain weapons we just say, well, you have to draw the line somewhere. And so I think what's interesting is it seems that every nation sort of has to define that for their own, they have to set the boundary where they choose to as a nation. And so I, I don't, it's interesting to me that I don't know how we can answer biblically the question of 
where where does the line draw? And so that's where I say, as an American, that's where the the, the Supreme Court has answered that question for us in terms of saying it describe it, it it applies to the kinds of weapons you would have for hunting and for your own personal use, but not to the kinds of weapon that only exist for national defense or for a military use. Um, and again. I, I think, is that line arbitrary? Sure, in some ways. Um, so because, would you, which side of the line do you, would you put assault weapons? Uh, I don't know. I, I probably am ambivalent on that because I think that's one of the live debates in the American context is just do those, I know people who use those for hunting. I know, I know people who would say those are only meant for military use. And I think you can make a case either way. Okay, that's good. All right, Andrew. So there are many out there who would make the argument that gun restriction keeps the guns out of the hands of those who would use, it, use them responsibly not out of the hands of those who would not. How do you respond to that argument? Um, Given think, where we are now. Yeah, I, so I, I think this is, this is why I spent so much time, so, so much more time talking about Australia than I did talking about the Bible, mm-hmm. as, as strange as that is in this context, because I think, I think if I just, if I make the pacifist argument, I don't think it'll convince anybody, and I'll just go, well, okay, well, it's a moral, you know, conscience thing. But I think with, with the, the example of Australia to me is helpful because it's an example of a nation which has got enough culturally in common with the US and which did have assault weapons and doesn't now, and in which all of the results and outcomes I think we would want, if we're, what we're trying to do is to defend the innocent, and that actually I think you could, this is why I distinguish between defense and violence, you see, mm-hmm. is I think you would defend the innocent better by dramatically restricting what kinds of weapons can be used and how many people they can kill at once, even if in practice that sounded like you were taking away, I was taking away your right to defend yourself. Yeah. I might actually defend you and your family better by imposing that law and by making it possible for people to give them back. Now, there's a big public opinion war to, war to be won there and all. War, that's an inopportune choice of words. <laughs> um, and, and also, I know there's a lot, there's a lot of history and context in, in Britain, but I think it's not dissimilar from a lot of what happened in, in Australia. And so that's why I just think that comparables, even within states of the US, as I said, let alone internationally, suggest that in the end, tighter gun restrictions are correlated to, and you could argue about the causality, but are correlated to lower gun deaths, not higher ones. So mm-hmm. although in principle it sounds like, oh, if I've, you've got a gun, I want one too to defend my family. Actually, if neither of us have guns, or if I put mine down and you probably put yours down as well, and there might be a few miscreants who still have them, and that's tragic. And of course, they may abuse them, and they have in Australia. It's not like no one's ever shot anyone ever since, and they do in Britain. But the overall effect to the nation is to significantly diminish not just gun deaths, but homicides in general. And I think that's a, a very good outcome. So I, I just don't think it's borne out by the evidence of what's happened in developed nations when they've applied it. It obviously is different in nations where the state is much weaker and less able to enforce and where poverty is more rife and so on. But in Western nations, I think the comparables are, are encouraging for gun control. It seems like, though, that argument would depend on the government having a vested interest in stopping that, in deciding where that boundary is. And I think for many people in the American context, the the open question is, can I trust the federal government to tell me what kinds of guns are okay for me to own and what kinds aren't? Because as soon as I entrust that decision to someone else and allow them to define how big a magazine I can have or what kind of rifle counts as a hunting rifle versus a not one, I'm ceding a lot of ground, at least in the American context, that the Constitution gives to the people and to the citizens. Yeah, and that's why... It's the, the question about how Christians should think about it. Yeah. I, know, I know this isn't going to happen, but it's what I think Christians should want to happen. That's the point. So, so I, and I think if you had a Christianized nation where people were people saying, I really want to know what, what does Jesus think about AR-15s, yeah. I, I do still find it very hard to believe that people would, just, would go away with the Bible if they didn't have the, the Constitution in the background and go, is this an area where 
American life has been more discipled by a mixture of history and, and opposition against people with accents like mine and all sorts of things in the history as well. Uh, wearing, <laughs> actually, you know, wearing red by and large. Um, but whether or not that's, that's overshaped the, the American narrative on it in contrast to people who went, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to read the Bible. And because even just war advocates across through history, I don't think most of the Augustine Aquinas, the guys you're quoting, I, I, maybe it's a failure of imagination on my part. I, I cannot imagine the sort of lethality that is currently possible with an AR-15 and Thomas Aquinas saying, yeah, I think you should have guys, you know, taking deadly weapons into church or, yeah, I think you should have it. You know, I, I just, I don't think that's an application that just war advocates who made it so difficult for the state to go to war. They said you can, and I disagree with them on that, but they said it's so hard. The bar you have to clear is so high. I, I think that the bar we have in this country is very, very low in comparison. And I think that Christians constitutional arguments and government intransigence and concern about state power, notwithstanding, I think Christians should not be okay with that. And so am I hearing, I think you said this, are you kind of challenging whether we're reading the Bible through the lens of the constitution or the constitution through the lens of the Bible? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a challenge worth making, but I think it, it's, I was, I think that's true generally. I think that's all true, right? It's, I, I've got to do the same as an English person. I think we've got mm-hmm. to do it. And you read the Bible through your economy and well, you know, what's okay for, what jobs are okay for Christians to do and those sorts of things. Um, I think we all do that. But I was making probably a narrower point, which is I think that the, the concern about ceding power to the state, which the constitution has given to the individual, to me is, it's a constitutional argument. It's an, and it's right that Americans are having that conversation. But I think Christians, can to an extent circumvent that intramural constitutional American debate and say, well, hang on a second. If the outcome of that is that we're saying that Americans can and should, and, not, and in fact, I think in some of Bob's argument, there's a sense it's not just a you're allowed to, but there's almost a moral imperative to mm. own a gun that could come in and kill everybody in this building in the space of a few seconds. I, I just feel like at some point, and Christians have to say, well, hang on, if that's where we've got with the constitutional argument, don't we need to take a step back and say, well, is that, have we prioritized correctly the two? I'm not saying that only Americans <laughs> read right, the Bible right. through their culture at all. I, mean, I hope that I yeah. wouldn't be that naive, but I do think in this particular case, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like having a, you know, a queen for the head of the church in Britain. It's just one of those things that I think when you're in your own nation, you go, oh, you know, our, our idolatry of the National Health Service or whatever it might be, you would notice things in my culture as well and say, are you guys sure about that? Um, so I think it's, it's, to me, it's like one of those things. So one of the, the heavy things that he threw out were those statistics, the yep. statistics of the United States. I don't think anybody listening is going to hear that and not have their hearts break. How do you, in your position, um, how do you hear that? How does that land on you and how does that inform your, your defense of, of, of having gun ownership? Well, he's absolutely right. I mean, the statistics, America is the most violent country in the world when it comes to gun deaths, and that's a tragedy. And I think it should grieve Christians. And the question, he's asking the right question, which is what what then should we do in light of that? If we care about peace, if we care about the flourishing of human beings, if we care about Jesus's way being uh, cared about in our world, in our society. Um, And so I, I don't think we can ignore those questions, but I am suggesting, I think that it is interesting to me that this question in some ways is specific to each country and to its history, right? To each country's history. And in America in particular, because the Second Amendment has been such a, a, an important part of our founding and our history and, and the way that uh, the framers understood the right to bear arms as being an essential human right. Now we're at a place where, well, arms have 
technologically advanced since that time. Yeah. And so we do have questions of what about AR-15s and what about assault weapons, and, right? Those kind of what about questions are important questions. I'm saying I don't think that those questions deny or erase the fundamental reality that the, the citizen's right to bear arms is important and should be the primary thing rather than entrusting that to the government. And I, I think that's the basic American experiment that is, you know, the statistics prove two things at once, right? They, they certainly prove that if you allow gun ownership broadly in a society, you're going to have to face the reality of more violence. Um, but when the response, the only answer to that is, let's restrict that, right, and allow the government then to, to be in control of who owns guns and where, I think in our country, we decided early on, that's not the way we want to go. I think it's an open question, should we want to go that way? And, and Andrew's actually, what the point you just made was interesting is, if as a society becomes more Christianized, right? If we see gospel influence more broadly in society, how would it change the way we think about that question? That's actually a provocative question to me. Well, I thought it was interesting, Bob, that you started out by saying what he would have to do to, yeah. to beat you, basically. And, uh, and you, you, you laid it out. And so I'm going to read what you said. You said, to defeat your argument, Andrew would have to show either that human beings do not have a basic right to self-defense, that Christians do not have a moral duty to love their neighbors by protecting that right, or that the right to self-defense does not include the right to bear arms. So do you think that Andrew has made a compelling case um, that the right to self-defense has limits for the sake of loving our neighbors, which may not include guns? Um, well, of course not, because I won. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I think, obviously, I think his point was aimed at that third point of saying you made a distinction between defense and and the and violence, right? And I think that is the, it seems like that's the place where he's aiming sort of his argument is to say, yeah, we can draw a distinction between the right to defend one another, but the question of does that necessarily include guns and the right to own guns and the unlimited right to sort of, especially in America, right, to, to have no limitations as Australia does. And so I think that is, a, I mean, I, I think that's the, if I were making the counter argument, that's probably the place I would aim to. Because I think those first two things are more, that, that's more fundamental to humanity, right? We would say, well, every human being has the right to existence and to protect their existence and, and has the duty to love one another. Um, so I don't think, it seems to me that what I was trying to do is to say that those two things are a little more uh, transcendent. Yeah. That last one is the question that I think applies in a, mm. in a debate like this. Mm. So he started out talking about Zelensky and, uh, and the Ukraine and what he's doing now to try and do whatever he can to get weapons into the hands of his people because of what's going on there, obviously, with Russia invading. Um, in World War II, from what I understand, reading of history, one of the Axis powers were very concerned about how in the world you would invade the United States because of how many private citizens owned uh, guns and ammunition um, how how does that part of the debate land with you? Because he made that argument. It's one that's circulating now. I'm curious how yeah. you respond to that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think World War II is the, the closest thing we have to a, 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 ge a genuine war of good against evil, right? And I, I think probably most wars in history say, oh, there's, you know, there's bad men on both sides, there's good men on both sides. I, I think when you have Hitler and Nazis and wanted to steamroll everybody, you'd go, okay, that's a, I think we're as close as we can be to saying that's a very, very bad man and a lot of very bad, bad things are going to happen if he's in charge. But I, and so as that sense, it follows as, it's like the reductio ad absurdum of the pacifist position. And I think you, as a pacifist, you, you basically swallow it and you say, yeah, that might mean Britain had been invaded. I might now be speaking German. Maybe. I think the world will be, I have to trust the, the providence of God. I have, to, I, I have to ultimately say, this is exactly what Romans 12 is doing, saying you don't do these things because vengeance is mine. It's mine to repay. 
And I think in the Sermon on the Mount, don't re- again, I think if you read the Sermon on the Mount and say, what does this say I should do with Hitler? You'd go, yeah, I think that means you might have to say, I don't resist. And, and, and at that point, you might say, oh, that's cowardice. I, think, I actually think that takes a lot of courage to hold that position, but it is very costly and it has been. It's not, and the thing to bear in mind for me is that it's not hypothetical, even for people who lived in Israel-Palestine in the first century. They themselves had terrible, you know, they, we're talking the era of Caligula and Nero, you know, yeah. this is how they died. This is what Paul died, how Paul died, Peter died, these guys. So then and Jesus himself, of course, crucified, but, you know, and in a sort of, as an ex- example, to be humiliated as an example of Roman state power. So I don't think it's, I don't think World War II is the conversation, I'm not saying you're using it this way, or you are, but I don't think it's the conversation stopper it can seem. You're like, well, obviously you had to kill Hitler, didn't you? And then from there we reason out to owning AR-15s or whatever. I think, no, I'm not even going to accept that because I think that in the early church, that is precisely the question the church had to ask is, so yeah, how do we respond to Rome? How do we respond to oppressive, malevolent empire who, who is forcing us to worship false gods and so on? And they said, yeah, we, we don't fight and kill them, which is, I think it'd be interesting to get to the Constantine thing, actually. But, but I think that's one of the, in the era of state persecution of the church, it's fascinating that that's just not the argument the church ever made. So I, I don't, it sounds very weird in our world to say, let Hitler invade, you know, bring it on and trust it to God. And, you know, who knows what would have happened. Um, but also the question turns around, what would have happened if German Christians hadn't picked up arms to fight their French, Polish, Russian, British brethren? And so I think you, you can turn it on its head a bit. Like that All right, I am going to go to Constantine in just a minute. Um, I love that you now cast. <laughs> this is, oh, I'm going to change it. Well, you talked about, you know, what you, you said it was this way and something changed. Sure, yeah. And so we, we'll, we'll go there. But I want to I want to take, I want to pull in this thread just a little bit more. Mm. You mentioned that there are weapons that can kill everybody in this room. Mm. Um, recently, at least in the United States, that's my context, there have been videos circulating of somebody showing up in a church or elsewhere with a gun intending to kill a lot of people, but because someone else had a gun, it was stopped. Does that seem like a, um, an argument for people to be able to bear arms to you? Oh, and when you said to you, uh, then the answer is at that point. In your no, it do, no, it doesn't. And I think for two reasons. I think firstly, if the camera was to pan back from that encounter with, you know, and it, 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 of course it sounds heartless. I've never been in this situation, right. praise God. And I know that some have, and there may be people watching this who have seen that or people close to them who have. But I think if the camera was to pan back from that specific situation to the entire nation and you said, actually, the, 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 the freedom to do this that applies to this guy defending these people, when extrapolated to all of these 350 million people, means a lot more innocent people die, which I think is what statistics at least suggest, then that changes the moral calculus somewhat, I think at a pragmatic level. And I also think at a theological level, this is basically exactly what Peter was doing when he picked up the sword and chopped the guy's ear off, is what the disciples were saying they were going to do. It's called down far from heaven. I, I think that when, when Christ engages with Christians raising that question, and it only happens three times, but each time it does, he's, he's pretty direct. He says, no, you don't do that. And so I think at that point, I think Christians, as we all do in many other fields anyway, is we have to choose the way of the cross, to choose to suffer, rather than to take up arms and, and kill. And I think that's, yeah, that's essentially what Christian pacifism is. That, that's, that's, the, that's my position. Um, I know that it's, it, in, that one, in that room, at that moment, it looks like a very strange moral decision. And I would say, I think sometimes Christian morality does, but I also think if you were to take the wider view, you might say, well, hang on, is, w- would a, a European, Australian, Swiss approach to 
weaponry in the overall actually save more lives than it costs in that one situation. So that's a, a more pragmatic way of doing it. Would it would the danger have presented itself in the first place? Is what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. Or, or would it present itself in more rarely overall yeah. in the nation? Than it does. I think it would. I think that's what the Australian experiment, as well as I mean, you could use lots of European examples as well. It's just I know that, you know, we're, we're Europeans. We do <laughs> we do we do things differently over there. But I, I do think there are. It would suggest that th- there's a broader moral calculus than simply what's happening in that space when someone comes in here with a gun. That's a very different thing when you pan back at a national level. You might say, yeah, some of those innocent people might die in that situation, but the le- legislation required to limit this guy from defending them, if applied nationally. Yeah, might actually save more lives rather than cost them. That makes sense. So we've talked about Constantine. You referenced in your argument that that indeed, in from what you're reading, the first 300 years of Christianity, their view, if I'm hearing you right, would have aligned more yep. with Andrew's view. What yep. changed? Well, I mean, there's two ways of reading that, or probably more than two ways of reading it, right? The the cynical way of reading it is, well, Constantine came to power. Now Christianity has the power of the state behind it, and so we need Christians to serve in the military. We need Christian, you know, like we need Christians to be in the army, and so pacifism needs to go away, and we have to make a new case. And, and I think that's a one way of reading it. Um, I think that's a cynical way of reading it. I suspect that. I mean, it's the same thing that we would say, like correlation doesn't equal causation, right? So there are other factors going on. One of the things I think is interesting is in those first 300 years of the early church, one, uh, the church um, is still growing through the Roman Empire, and two, it's really a one-world empire, right? I mean, I mean, Rome is the empire, and so you don't have individual nation-states, you don't have Christianity all over the world yet, it's still early in the, in the life of the church, and so the, the main thing the church is dealing with is Rome. And so the question of, if my own government is oppressing me for being a Christian, if I have to go uh, become a martyr for the professing the name of Christ, should I do that? Absolutely. Uh, that, that, so that's the question I think that they're answering in the first 300 years of the church. I don't think they're having to answer the question um, if my neighbor is under threat of grave attack from someone other than the government, right? Um, or what about, you know, is it okay for my neighbor to serve in the army if it's not the Roman army that has been oppressing us and the same people that put Jesus on the cross, but if we're talking about uh, the, the ongoing progress of history. So I think it's interesting that um, certainly you could say Constantine coming to power is the thing that changed the argument, but I think that's a too simplistic way of reading it because it's interesting to me that since then in history, from Augustine to Luther to, to many, many right uh, Protestant um, and, and broader Christian exegetes in, in various places throughout the world since Constantine, many of them have made the argument that Christians should be able to serve in good conscience in the military or in, as police officers or whatever. I, I do respect, I think the Christian pacifism is a really respectable position and primarily because it is a hard position to hold and to defend when you look at things like Hitler. It's hard, to, it's hard for him to have to be in the chair and say, yeah, actually my position would say we should have let Hitler take over the world. I, that's a, I mean, I respect a man who's willing to have the conviction to say that's what how I read the scriptures, would, would what, what it would lead me to say. And I think that's the very reason why um, in the history of the church, sort of broadly speaking, the more magisterial Protestant tradition has generally said, um, you know, it goes back to sort of Luther's vision of the two kingdoms, right? That there's there's what Christians are to do as Christians, and then there's what Christians are to do as, as citizens of a society, and that there's a distinction to be made there. And I think he made it most clearly, but I think he's just sort of doing the same work Augustine did in the in the fourth century. So if there were World War III and in I don't know how old we all are and who's eligible or whatever, but like, would your conscience prevent you? Was that from... an implication that I'm, I'm too just old to fight? Right? I guess it, it, I'm 43 it, it, for what that. Okay, I'm 42. <laughs> um, so, if there was a scenario where we were called to support our country, would your conscience prevent you from? Yeah, okay. sure. Yeah, and, lo- and uh, 
to be honest, lots of people would who don't even hold to Christian yeah, buzzer. That's fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Well, we have about five minutes left. And one of the things that I appreciate about you two uh, is that you, you're really not shooting at, you, at each other, pun intended. I mean, you, 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 appreciate each, you appreciate each other. And I, and I appreciate the way that you've argued this. You have people to your flanks that would have more, uh, not only more extreme views, but a less congenial and charitable way of communicating them. So I want to finish by just asking, in your opinion, what is the most compelling part of your opponent's view? I think the most compelling part of Andrew's view is twofold. One, I don't think you can argue statistically that the prevalence of guns leads to a greater prevalence of violence. And so I think the question of how should a Christian feel about that and what would a Christian response to that be is the most important question. Uh, and I think that you're, you're, the distinctions you made between the importance of defense and the, and the question of should it be violent defense is a, is a great question and a great distinction to be made. And I think the best part of Bob's argument actually is the point he was making just a, a moment or two ago about the, the church tradition since Constantine in that, uh, you know, I, obviously people like me are going to play the early church card, but I think if, if, I, if, if I was to be found out I was wrong, or like, what would be the tell argument that I found out, ah, oh, yeah, I should have seen that all along. It would be that pretty, you know, pretty much from 400 to 1600, 1700 until, until the Anabaptist really, there was a lo- almost uncontested church witness on the legitimacy of violence. Now I'm, I'm talking amongst Baptists, uh, so we may not be particularly persuaded by that from that angle, but I actually feel the same about baptism too. If I was finding out I was wrong about that, I'd think, yeah, it's because these guys... Will... So I think that's probably the bit that makes me go, I'm saying a lot of very, very smart, godly people are wrong. And that gives me pause. Uh, I still think they are, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But but that's probably the bit where when, when you raise it, I think, yeah, that is... I wish a few more of those guys were on my side. Let's put, put it that way. Well, I want to say as we finish how much I appreciate both the time that you've given to this topic. Your clearly your your motivation is to love people. Your motivation, uh, even though you disagree, is to honor Christ, and it shows in the way that you've communicated today. So, thank you for coming here, for being a part of it, and for delivering your view to uh, the world at large. Thank you for thank you. hosting and moderating. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's bonus episode from the Good Faith Debates. Make sure to check out the next debate. It's ready for you right here on TGC Podcast to watch videos from the debates and download free resources for further discussion with your staff or small group. Visit goodfaithdebates.com. Good